0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Another pastor friend told me a story once about a medical missionary. The missionary, before he was on the mission field, worked as a surgeon. And he was a skilled and well-regarded surgeon, but he began to feel called to missions. You can imagine the change that involved of like serious, high salary, important job in a hospital to an African village of some sort. Big change. So he goes to his pastor, tells his pastor, hey, I think I'm called to missions, hospital over here in Africa. I'm interested in that. I want to get in touch with them. And you can probably guess what the pastor said. You would imagine that if you went to your pastor talking about how excited you were about being called to go to the mission field, that you would get thoroughgoing encouragement. That's great. I love it. We'll commission you. We'll support you. We'll visit you. We'll... Be your ministry partners, but that's not what this newly called missionary heard. Instead, the pastor discouraged him. You don't need to. You've got. You're doing great things here. There's no need to move all the way around the world. You're needed here, and you can begin to wonder. You know that like that may not be quite what we were expecting to hear, and you wonder what the pastor's motivations were worst case scenario maybe he didn't want to lose that surgeon's tithe but let's give him the benefit of the doubt maybe he's got good intentions maybe he does really want to say like there's 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 work to be done here and god's working and let's you know think about that and that scenario invites us to kind of begin to reflect right about The relationship about our intentions and God's purposes, doesn't it? And those two things sometimes they match and sometimes they don't. And different folks maybe see it differently sometimes, don't they? Sometimes, you know, I may think my intentions and God's purposes are perfectly aligned, and then you may think they're not necessarily. And we're invited to maybe reflect on that relationship. And there's help for us in the Scriptures because the question of the relationship between God's intentions, good intentions, and God's purposes comes up in our text today. You may have noticed. You may have noticed it. You may have noticed where there were multiple times people, well-intended people, Christian people, who love God and who love Paul, discouraged him from going back to Jerusalem. But Paul was convinced and convicted that God's purposes for him lie in the direction of that city. And so there's a tension there, isn't it? There's a tension in the community between good intentions. Like we want Paul to be alive. <laughs> that seems like a pretty good, good intention, doesn't it? And the question of God's purposes. And the thing that we discover and the thing we need to be careful about and the thing we want to figure out how to navigate this is that sometimes good intentions actually hold us back from God's purposes. Like that's possible, isn't it? Sometimes our good intentions, our well-intended actions and purposes, like this is the bottom line, right? Sometimes good intentions hold us back from God's purposes. And we see that in Paul's life, and that's going to help us think through what that might look like in our lives. So we meet Paul today on a journey. He's setting off from Miletus. He's heading towards Jerusalem. They drop by lots of cities. They cover a lot of miles. We hear all about it in these few verses. The narrative is fast-paced. And Paul is convicted that this journey is, like, this is God's will for him. He told the Ephesian elders just a few verses earlier in chapter 20, when he met with the Ephesian elders, he didn't go through Ephesus, Uh, he's in a hurry, so he said, I can't sidetrack over there, I'll probably be stuck for an extra few days, because there's going to be other people who want to see me. Ever been in that situation where, I saw this the other day, uh, somebody put a picture of some city they'd been to on Facebook, and then somebody in the comments says, oh, I wish you'd have called. (laughs) That's probably what Paul was trying to avoid, Right? It didn't have Facebook in the first century, but word would have got around that Paul was in Ephesus, and there would have been people lining up to see him. Well, you know, just tell them to come over here, and we'll meet in another city, and then I can get on to Jerusalem without getting held up too long. So he, he tells them in verse 22 of chapter 20 that he did not shrink. Let me make sure I got my verse right here. Yeah, verse 22. And now, as a captive to the Spirit, right, this is the Spirit of God's purpose for me. I'm given to the Spirit of God. As a captive to the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I don't know what the future holds. I don't have a lot of certainty about this. It could go very badly. Maybe it'll go very well. I got this collection that's kind of a gift of peace and charity. And hopefully that'll help people see that we're kind of on the same side here. And we want to be one big... Family, We don't have all the same practices. We don't eat the same kind of foods. We don't even have the same dialect, but we love Jesus, and maybe that'll be enough. And I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going because i got to find out. And I'm bound by the Spirit to do it. Captive to the Spirit of God. So he says that. He's committed to it. Chapter 20, verse 22. He goes on in verse 23. It's probably going to go badly because the Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for. But I don't count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. So Paul's got this deep conviction like that God's path for him, God's purposes for him lie in the direction of Jerusalem. And it could go badly, and he gets that. He even says to the Ephesian elders, probably not going to see you guys again. Like, this is the last time that we will probably see each other face to face. So I wanted to meet, encourage you one more time, because it's probably the last time. And even though Paul is so deeply convinced, there is this sense of. Am I going to persevere in doing what I ought to do? It's almost like there's this question. I'm committed to it, but I'm still praying. I'm still seeking to finish the course, to finish my ministry. Like, if we don't know the final chapter yet from where he's sitting. Like, what if I chicken out a few stops later? What if that happens? And the thing that does happen is that people in other cities, a few stops later, encourage him not to keep going, don't they? And you get this sense, we'll see this in just a couple of minutes, of how much Paul is wrestling with the pleas of the church. And you get this sense where the potential exists for good intentions, well-intended folks who love Paul and want the absolute level best for him, could hold him back from God's purposes. How do we navigate that? Like that, there's tension there, and there's that's t- that's a tough place to be. How do we handle that? Get the census isn't done. How's it going to work out? So Paul continues. They set sail. They go through different cities, Kos, Rhodes, Patara. They they get on a ship heading for Phoenicia. They get on board. They set sail. They come inside of Cyprus. It, they leave. Like you just feel how that's a lot of sailing. And you just get it in a few verses. And then they stop. They land tired. The ship's got to be unloaded. So we got a little time because that doesn't happen quickly. We look up the disciples and went and stayed there with them. And through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go into Jerusalem. Now that seems <laughs> like you think, well, earlier Paul said he's bound by the Spirit to go. And now you got people saying, like, on through the Spirit, not to go. And I, I think that we need to kind of interpret that in context, right? Context is everything, and Luke is not the kind of guy who contradicts himself in the span of a few verses. Very careful, his story. So what's going on here? I think what he's trying to communicate is that, like, these folks are well-intended. Like, it's out of a real charitable Love and concern for Paul and his well-being, that they're asking him not to go. Don't keep going, man. Like you could be planting churches. We'll support you. There's places where people need the gospel. You can head west instead of east. There's plenty of ministry to be done. It's good. Good things can be done. You go back there, you're probably dead. And you get this sense that there are these, these folks who love the mission and they love Paul. But, in, there's, but their, their focus isn't quite where it should be. They're not quite oriented to God's purposes in this setting. And their good intentions have the potential to hold Paul back from realizing God's purposes in his life in Jerusalem. So he keeps going. Eventually, he arrives in Caesarea. From Caesarea, you travel by land to Jerusalem, but they're going to take a few days and stay with the believers in Caesarea. And while they're there, the prophet shows up. You've got to be careful when prophets show up because you never know what they're going to say. This guy Agabus comes along, he takes a belt. Takes the belt, takes Paul's belt, not just any belt, Paul's belt. Takes the belt, ties it around his hands. Says... The owner of this belt, when you get in Jerusalem, this is what they're going to do to you. They're going to tie you up. They're going to give you to the Gentiles, the pagan, the Romans. That's where you're going to get your trial and all the things that come with it. And so, what do the people do? Again, they love Paul, they care about Paul, they care about the mission. And they urge him not to go. And note this. This is a development. In verse 12, Agabus gives this prophecy. This is what the Holy Spirit says, the way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, hand him over to the Gentiles. Then verse 12 says, this is new. This is like upping the ante in terms of the personal pressure on Paul not to do what he thinks God's calling him to do. What does it say? When we heard... This, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. We? Who's we? It's not now, it's not just the Christians of Caesarea urging Paul not to go up. His own ministry team is urging him not to go up. This is like, this is beyond... Well, you know, I went and visited this church over there, and I love those folks. It was great to see them again. They didn't want me to do it, but you know, I got to. This is like my close, this is my band group. This is my discipleship group. This is my Sunday school class saying, Don't do it, man. Don't do it. This is Luke. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't go. So, again, good intentions. These aren't pagans who are trying to steer, God off, steer Paul off God's course for him. Like these are missionary partners. Well intended. And yet, they were afraid for Paul. And they were allowing their fears to govern their posture in relation to God's purposes. Never let that happen where my fears begin to govern my posture towards God wants to do in and through my life the life of the church what if it goes badly what if nobody shows up what if the wrong people shows up what if we go and something bad happens on the mission trip and there's a disaster and maybe we should just not take the chance you ever been in your own walk or in a church setting where it was kind of, it looks too risky, and well intended folks say, Sorry, let's take the less risky option. It's not to say you just go do crazy, foolish things, it is to say that sometimes God's purposes are not always what we would consider safe. So here he is again. It's not just believers in one place calling on Paul not to go. It's his closest, most trusted friends and co-workers in the gospel. And you get a sense for how he's struggling in the next verse, verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? And the New Revised Standard Version translates the next call this way weeping and breaking my heart but there's one commentator out there who said maybe it'd be better to translate it weeping and breaking my will that's kind of the like the image of the heart this isn't like a romantic relationship where his heart got broken because his crush didn't want to go out with him or whatever right that's not what's going on here this is paul's heart he's given his all to it i've got my whole heart i've got all my energy into what god's calling i'm singly focused on what god is calling me to do and you are trying to break my will you're trying to break my commitment to follow Jesus, even if it means carrying a cross just like him. And it's a good reminder, friends, that the biggest temptation to betray what, our, what we're called to do isn't an unbeliever. It's the people in the pew next to us. I'll start looking around. <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus predicted his death the first time in the Gospels. Who was it that said no? It wasn't the devil. It wasn't the Roman Empire. It was Peter. He was the guy who'd been traveling around preaching with him. God has called me to lay down my life for you and the nations. And his best friend, the guy on the pew next to him, and said, oh, no, he hasn't. That doesn't mean don't trust the people in your church. It does mean that it's absolutely crucial for the church to be seeking God together. See the difference there? So with Jesus, first person who says, you don't have to pick up that cross. We got swords. We can handle this. It's his best friend. Paul In the same direction Jesus was heading, towards Jerusalem, knowing his fate, knowing that persecutions and potentially death awaits him. Why are you trying to break my will? Why are you trying to keep hold? Why are you trying to hold me back from God's purposes? I get it. It doesn't sound safe. I get it. It sounds risky. I love. You And I value you and your opinion and your perspective and your good intentions mean the world to me. But I need you to understand this is what I'm called to do. Paul didn't say you're trying to break my will when they were back in Tyre. Because Luke and his other co-workers weren't pressuring him. They were still like, we're still going, but now they're on the mainland. (laughs) And it's just a walk the rest of the way. And the prophet showed up, and that was kind of discouraging, wasn't it? <laughs> Let's hold back, man. Maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another way. Paul says, what are you doing trying to break my commitment to follow God's purposes for me? Sometimes good intentions hold us back from God's purposes, brothers and sisters, and it's crucial for the church, it's crucial, not just individuals, but us as a church figure out how to navigate that? How do we hold those two things in place? How do we ensure that our intentions are aligned with God's purposes? That's a question this text wants us to ask over and over and over again. So they get to Jerusalem, and Paul goes to meet with James, brother of Jesus, and the elders, power players in Jerusalem. This is the leaders of the Jerusalem Believing community. It's it's almost humorous. You kind of read through this. We arrived in Jerusalem. This is verse 17. The brothers welcomed us warmly. All right? So they, they haven't met James and the other like big boys yet. It's the brothers, like the average believers, like, hey, Paul, great to see you. We're glad you're here. Come on in. Let's have some dinner or something like that, right? They show them hospitality, they greet them warmly. The next day, they go to visit James, and all the elders are present, and Paul greets them <laughs> and tells them what He's been up to. We don't, we're not told that they greet him back. We are told that they're excited about the ministry he's doing, but then it moves very quickly. It's like, yeah, that's great, Paul. We're really stoked about the ministry you're doing. That's awesome that the, 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 the nations are coming to hear the gospel. We got a problem we need to tell you about it, and it's you. You've been making big problems for us up here, buddy. I know you're all over all over the empire, all over the Mediterranean. It's all church planting, happy, happy, joy, joy, and good stuff like that. But let me tell you what's going on around here. we got thousands of believers, thousands of believers, and they don't like you because they've heard rumors, three rumors specifically. Number one, that you're telling the Jews who live out in the empire to forget Moses. Like, don't worry about Torah. Mount Sinai, who needs that? That's what they're hearing, Paul. Number two you're telling them not to circumcise their children because everybody then knew that every Gentile looked down on the practice of circumcision. You'll have to remember that in the ancient world, privacy wasn't really the thing it is now. You probably didn't have a bath in your home, you went to a public bath. The Jews took great pride in their circumcision as a distinctive of their ethnicity. Everybody else thought they were crazy and foolish. And they were, shame was cast upon them to the extent that there were actually medical procedures to try to reverse that. So they're angry that Paul apparently, at least they've heard, has gotten on board with the Gentiles when it comes to this most important, crucial marker of their identity. So number one, You tell the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Torah. Two, you tell them not to circumcise their children. Three, you tell them not to observe the customs, the traditions. What are we going to do about that, Paul? Paul's like, hey, I brought an offering, and they're they're like, what are we going to do about it, Paul? Like, that ain't going to fix the problem. And the question, what are we going to do about it? It's almost kind of rhetorical. You've probably done that before, had that rhetorical question. What are we going to do about it? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do about it. I got a plan here's what we're going to do. You need to find a way to show the Jewish, belief, the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem that you love Moses as much as they do. So we got these four guys, and they're committed to a certain right. We, don't, we aren't told what the right is uh, or what, what sort of vow they've taken. There's a few different options. Um, but, but, but the James and the other elders want Paul to get involved in that, right? Uh, Feast of Pentecost is coming up. You've been out in Gentile lands, Uh, And there's some rites that you can employ to purify yourself because you've been in unclean territory, and now you're back here. If you're going to go in the temple, you've got to go through this ritual cleansing purification process, right? So you can pay for them. Thanks for bringing that collection. You can pay for them. It's going to cost you, and you can go through the process yourself. Now, here's the thing. This is risky for Paul. This is risky for Paul. Because he's just been told there's thousands of people who just as soon have him dead. And these guys want him to stroll up into the temple where everybody's hanging out, doing what they do, and go through this ritual. He is not in hiding. He's not running. He's not trying to lay low. He's going to the chief place where all the people who don't care very much for him will be to go through this ritual. James is in a place where he's trying to navigate the good intentions of the Jewish Christian population and God's purposes in Paul as an apostle. You might think, let's flesh that out just a little bit. It's really important to understand the political climate in Jerusalem in the mid-50s A.D. So, This is happening probably 55, 56, uh, 57-ish. Ten years before Jerusalem would be sieged. Ten, eleven years later, the Roman army would set up outside the gates, cut off the food supplies, and wait them out. The city would be in turmoil, and eventually, that world power Roman army would march in, rip every wall down, and burn it to the ground. That didn't happen like the situation that created that political turmoil didn't happen overnight, didn't happen in a couple years. It was building and building and building, and it was building in the mid-50s when Paul shows up in Jerusalem. And what happens when people of different ethnicities begin to have tension, right? They sort of dig themselves in on their distinctives, don't they, right? Like, we're the Jewish people and we don't like the Romans and we're Jewish believers and we don't like the Gentiles and Paul's been running around with the Gentiles trying to give them the gospel and, and he's betraying us and so he's not, like, we're committed to Moses and we're committed to circumcision. We've got all these distinctives. Like, this is who we are. And he won't, like, he's transgressing that. And it's more important now than ever Because the bad guys are at the gates. And so James has got one situation where he's got folks ready to revolt and and insurrections are happening all the time. He's got folks ready to revolt and probably die at the end of a Roman spear. And he's got Paul and he's glad that the gospel's going to the nations. How, How do you navigate that? And you can't fault the Jewish population living in an oppressed, like they're slaves in their own land, wanting to hold on to their distinctives when they're feeling like they're about to be wiped out at any moment. Good intentions. And how does that relate to God's purposes to get the gospel to the nations? Like how do you maintain your own ethnic identity and be a church for people of every ethnicity? So, James has got to navigate all this and he's got to figure out a way to keep those intentions from upending God's purposes for his people. And so, he wants Paul to be a Jew to the Jews. Like, you go out there and you show them you love our traditions and you love our scriptures and you are willing to pay and to sacrifice. For them. And I think that's helpful as we think about navigating that tension between our intentions and God's purposes. Good intentions and God's purposes. Look at Paul's posture. Where's his heart? You know, he doesn't get defensive, does does he? He doesn't say, well, man, I don't have to do that. Haven't you read Galatians? I don't have to go through those, jump through the hoops. I don't have to cater to their preferences. I'm free in Christ. I can do what I want to do. He doesn't call freedom in Christ here, does he? What does he do? He says, all right. I'll cover the costs and I'll do the ritual because I love them more than I love me. Because I love the gospel more than I love me. Because I love the unity of the church across Borders and language barriers and ethnic distinctions. I love all of that more than I love myself. I am more focused on God's purposes in the gospel, even if it requires sacrifice from me. I care more about that than I do myself, my preferences. Right? And Paul takes that posture because Paul understands and embraces the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who though he was God did not consider equality with God as an advantage but became a slave, fully human and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Jesus saying, I care more about you than me. Paul says, that's my Lord and I'll do whatever I have to do to commend God the gospel. And if it means going through the ritual, if it commends the gospel, so be it. So as we're thinking about this tension between intentions and purposes, good intentions, right? Again, like nobody's got bad motivations. (laughs) Nobody's being all selfish and nobody's trying to just bring in some nefarious plan. Everybody's like, they're well-intended people. And yet, amongst these conflicting good intentions, like we got to figure out what God wants here and how we're going to proceed in that direction. And so as we look at Paul's posture and we look at this sort of other-oriented perspective and posture that he takes, I wonder if we can maybe be helped if we draw on some language that the church is drawn on sometimes and make a distinction between an internally focused believer in church and an externally focused believer in church. If that's not kind of a spectrum you're familiar with, let me lay it out this way. I um, told you earlier I visited some different churches over the last few weeks. And every church, I went in with this question in mind, is this a place focused primarily on the internal expectations, priorities, preferences, needs of the community, or is it focused primarily externally on people outside the community? And it shows up in very subtle ways. It shows up in the way you make the announcements. Never think about this. Like if the announcements are full of insider language that only people who go to church there know, internally focused. You probably don't realize it. It's one of those things where like a fish doesn't know it's in the water until you take it out kind of thing. (laughs) but we went to one church and there was some event happening that night and the details that were presented, clearly everybody who went there knew what was going on. The rest of us, not so much. And I don't want to be overly critical. I just want to say, what happens if we take the fish out of the water for a minute? Here's one for you. If you go into a church And there's no sign telling you where the restrooms and the nursery are. Who's it built for? Well, obviously, it's not built for somebody who doesn't know where the restrooms and the nursery are. You're leaning over towards internally focused, because everybody who goes here knows where the bathrooms are, right? On the other hand, you've got uh, externally focused churches. And this is a spectrum, right? Like extreme cases and everywhere in between. On the other hand, you got the externally focused church, and and one of the churches we visited did did it this way. Now, this isn't for everybody, because this church was huge, and they need to do some specific things, because if they didn't have a plan, you would be anonymous no matter what. So we visited. Actually, we went to the website. Naomi checked out the website before we went in, and the website was like, hey, if you're new, this is the page for you. So you go to the website, it says new here. Clearly, they're paying attention to people who don't already go there, right? So that's a good externally focused indicator. So you click on new here, and the first thing you see is when you show up, you'll pull into the driveway, and you'll see these massive green squares painted on the road, and they say, guess what? New here. (laughs) Get in that lane. Now, here's the thing. This church was so massive that the buildings had letters on them on the outside, and the worship space was in building E, I think. <laughs> right? So, like, if I don't know and I'm in building A because I just happen to park on that side of the property, I could have three blocks to walk before I get to the place where I actually need to be to go to church. They know that. And so they're saying, hey, you know what? How can we make it easy on so- how can we make it easy for people to meet Jesus? Let's stencil a big green square on the parking lot so they don't know which lane to drive in. So we pop in the new here lane. I'm not suggesting we paint the sidewalks. So don't get any bright ideas. Um, <laughs> it's not far from the door to the driveway, so I think we're good. Different things in different contexts. This is pure illustrative purposes, just to kind of get the gears rolling, right? So we get in the new here lane and we drive, and all this is set out on the website. We get in the new here lane. I'm driving. I'm I'm on my green squares and I'm going along, and and if you follow the green squares, it takes you to a parking lot by the front by the door outside the sanctuary. And on the sidewalk, beside that parking lot, was a little tent, and it was set up. And there were five or six people, something like that, in the tent, and guess what they were wearing? Green shirts. Almost the same color as the squares on the pavement. Guess what the shirt said? New here. As I got out of the car, one of those guys walked up to me. Guess what the first thing he said was? Nope. Nope. My name's Dave. That's what he said. I'd been there, I'd been in town three weeks before I got to a church where somebody told me their name. That goes on the internal, external focus spectrum, too, by the way. My name's Dave. What brings you to church today? He walked all the way in with us, Uh, went by the coffee stand. Offered the kids a t-shirt. <laughs> like it was just, hey, we love you. We're glad you're here. Can we give you some gifts? Let's go in the sanctuary after you get that coffee. In. You might want to sit over that way because if you're here, the angle is a little strange. Catch you after the service. And it wasn't awkward. It wasn't strange. It wasn't peculiar. It was one of the most comforting things that's ever happened to me in this context of church because there's literally 2,000 people in the room. But I knew Dave. And I knew where I was supposed to be. So they're on the other end. They probably have meetings. <laughs> like that whole team of green-shirted people probably meet once or twice a month to talk through strategies on how they make people feel welcome. So they're on one end of the spectrum, and the other churches that use jargon are on the other end of the spectrum, and there's something all the way in, all the way in between. And here's the crucial question. You might be thinking, like, is that a gimmick so you can be a mega church? Uh uh-uh. uh. Here's a question. We'll, here's, here's a sentence, then a question. Brothers and sisters, we have the hope of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted his gospel to us. He said, Hey, Hope Hole, UMC, here's the gospel. It's the power of God to save everybody you run into. Jews and the nations. Here's the gospel. You don't invent it, you receive it. And it's the power of God for salvation to those who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the gospel. Now the question is, how easy will you make it for people to hear and respond to the gospel? Or will you put up barriers that you don't even realize exist? See the picture? And how you answer that question tells you where you are on the spectrum. Internally focused, externally focused. And I meant what I said earlier. I am exceedingly grateful to be in a church where there are signs pointing to different places so that people know where to go. And folks saying, Hey, my name is Ted or Wayne. Jimmy by the front door? That makes my job easy. Because if somebody walks in the door and has that anxiety, I was feeling a few weeks ago, like, I don't know anybody's name and I hope I don't sit in their seat. (laughs) As soon as, hey, I'm, that anxiety goes down. Let me show you where the nursery is. You can sit with me. Those barriers to hearing and responding to the gospel begin to fall. And so I wonder if, when we're in this place where we're asking the question, we have, like, every church has good intentions. Like, they put the announcements in the bulletin, nobody does that with bad intentions. Just trying to let people know when we're going to have a fellowship, right? But if we ask the question, like we've got good intentions and we want people to realize God's purposes, namely wholeness in Jesus, like what's in the way in between? And if we ask the question, is our posture here internally focused or externally focused, knowing that you never really land one way or the other, you're always on a journey in one direction or the other. Like Let's just notch it over this way for a little bit this week, and next week we'll figure out another step because there's going to be new circumstances. There's going to be new people, and we've got to deal with a new situation. There's always something that has to be attended to. The question is, what's our posture? What's our philosophy? What's our attitude? And I see Paul run into this situation where there are well-intended folks who are saying, you don't have to die. Don't go. And there are other folks saying, they want to kill you, (laughs) so do this. And every time, Paul's focus is on Jesus and the mission. Jesus and the mission. Jesus and the mission. I'm going to say it again. Jesus and the mission. Every time. Don't try to break my will. Jesus and the mission. And the mission is a multi-ethnic global church with outposts in every place. Jerusalem, Caesarea, Tyre, Rome. So I wonder what it, like, what's it look like if we sort of say, all right, Paul is about as externally focused as it gets. In one of the letters, one of the Corinthian letters, he says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. Like, I'm not trying to be inauthentic. I just want to meet people where they are and make sure there are no barriers to the gospel. That's externally focused. I'm not going to call my rights. I'm not going to claim freedom in Christ. I'm going to say, what can I do to make sure there's no barrier between you and God's purposes for you? And we get that wrong sometimes. I get that wrong sometimes. Work in progress, right? The main thing is, are we asking the question? What's my posture? I've got these I've got good intentions. God's got his purposes. And if we're seeking to be focused on Jesus and the mission, even if we get it wrong sometimes, if we're seeking to be focused on Jesus and the mission, he can work with that. He can work with that. And if we do it that way, if we make that question, are we focused like on our needs and preferences or on the mission? It's not to say there's no Attention to people who are here, right? Like, that's why we have a discipleship path, because the goal isn't just to get people in the door, it's to get people formed in Jesus. That's why you have a band group or a Sunday school class. That's why you have serve opportunities, mission show or ministry showcase. Next Sunday, you're going to get to hear all about the different things and places where you can get nurtured and cared for and minister to and minister to people. You're not saying we don't give her. We don't care about people who are here. We're just saying, like, we're here to make sure people hear the gospel and meet Jesus and get saved and grow in Christ's likeness. And we want that to be true of us, too. We want to grow in Christ's likeness. And so we have a community where we build that, and we're always trying to make sure that there are, there's always room for another person in that community. I think we can follow Paul's lead and do that. And I'm reminded as we kind of get ready to pray, John Wesley famously said I'm going to paraphrase him this was the gist of it you have one thing to do save souls so spend and be spent in this one thing to do and that doesn't mean just get people converted fire insurance it means helping everyone in the community new or old, to grow continuously and comprehensively to embody the character of Jesus with a focus on God's purposes for them and all of us. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org/sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.